Well, if we're honest, we recognize that there are certain passages of Scripture uh, that make us more uncomfortable than others. Uh, Sometimes that discomfort stems from, from which issues the world around us most misunderstands, what they they currently find most offensive. And then aware of this, it makes us uncomfortable to talk about those issues. Often, though, there is more to it than just that. Often, it's not merely that the unbelieving world around us takes issue with some teaching. It's that we take issue with it. Whether because we have bought into the lies of our culture and have equally misunderstood the matter, or because we do understand it, but that the teaching strikes against some sinful proclivity that still resides in us. Not just in the world around us, but that resides in us. We've declared that that Christ is King. We are being empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to joyfully submit to His Lordship, but we're not all the way there yet. We are still works in progress. In our culture today, not many topics are are more abhorrent to our neighbors than the topic of submission to authority, especially submission to authority in the context of marriage. So it's tempting then to, to avoid this topic altogether, but convinced that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.16. Convinced of that, we listen to every word and seek to apply it. This is why our normal pattern is to preach through entire books of the Bible, from beginning to end, one passage at a time, as that's the only way to ensure that we're not shrinking from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Acts chapter 20 as he exhorts pastor elders to do the same in his day and in ours. We preach the whole counsel of God. And so as we do just that, as we're working through the, the book of 1 Peter, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. You can find it very near the end of the Bible, specifically in, on page 234 in the second half of the Pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even as some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, by the power and by the presence of the Holy Spirit, help us to to hear your word rightly and to put it into practice, that the gospel may be beautifully displayed by our lives, 
and by our marriages. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. I'm going to come back to that very first word, likewise, momentarily. For now, just just recognize that, that this is the third consecutive passage addressing the topic of submission to earthly authorities. To be subject to someone is to to willingly place yourself under the authority of that person or institution. To do so uncoerced, right? Compliance without defiance. Peter first addressed the submission of of all people to the governing authorities. It's chapter 2, verse 13, saying, Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by the emperor, even... The emperor at that time, the wicked Nero, under whose wicked reign Peter himself would be crucified, and the apostle Paul would be beheaded. Peter then addressed the submission of slaves to slave masters, even to unjust, crooked masters, he says. And now Peter addresses the submission of wives to their husbands, even to unbelieving, non-Christian husbands. Topic, the issue of wives submitting to their husbands, it was not always a controversial issue in our nation, but it certainly is today. And so we first need to acknowledge that we cannot just sidestep this issue by writing this off as an accommodation to the culture of Peter's day. Now, if this, 1 Peter chapter 3, if this were the only passage that addressed this matter, well, Perhaps we could make such a cultural argument to to dismiss this as an accommodation to his day. But it's not the only passage that addresses this. And two of the other three New Testament passages addressing the matter of wives submitting to their husbands makes it clear that it is not an accommodation to the culture of that day. For example, when 1 Corinthians chapter 11 speaks of the husband being the head of his wife, An appeal is not made to the culture. An appeal is made to creation. Genesis chapter 1, where it says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8. An appeal is made to the creation order. And then when Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of the husband being the head of his wife, an appeal again is not made to the culture of that day, but to creation. This time, not with regard to the the order in which men and women were, were made in Genesis 1, but to the purpose for which they were brought together in marriage. Paul writes this, Ephesians 5, 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then Paul goes on after exhorting husbands and how to sacrificially love their wives. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2, saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So then we see that that a foundational purpose of marriage in the beginning is to picture, to, to put on display as a living parable, the loving relationship between Christ and his church. As wives picture the church and church-like submission as, as husbands picture Christ 
and Christ-like leadership. So then, given those arguments from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, we clearly cannot dismiss this teaching in 1 Peter 3 as an accommodation to culture. And while we're, we're thinking about the creation of the first man and woman in Genesis 1 and about the institution of marriage in Genesis 2, as it points us to Christ, it's worth noting the discussion of marriage in Genesis 3, the next chapter, and why it is that God's beautiful design for submission and headship and marriage is so challenging for us. It is challenging for us. There's, there's no sense in pretending that it's not. But, but, but why? Why do we have such a hard time accepting and delighting in God's good design for submission and headship and marriage? Because of sin. And not just our sinful aversion to authority in general. We, I've talked about that in the previous two passages. Uh, the serpents lie to Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, it was that God was holding out on them. And that the way to happiness was to throw off the shackles of that oppressive authority. And then because Adam and Eve gave in to that lie about authority being tyranny, we're now born with a, with a sinful proclivity to view all forms of authority as tyranny and to view submission as bringing humiliation. That was a serpent's lie. And as much of an issue, as much as this is an issue when it comes to submission to the government or submission to slaves, of slaves to their masters, it's even more of an issue in the marriage relationship. This is where it's most keen. And we know this because this is specifically called out by God in the curse of Genesis 3.16. He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What does it mean that the wife's desire shall be contrary to her husband and that her husband shall rule over her? Well, we don't have to go very far before we get an answer to what that language means. It comes just 15 verses later, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. When the Lord is explaining to Cain our battle with sin, the Lord says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Contrary to, rule over. It's the identical language to what was found 15 verses earlier in Genesis 3.16. We see that then in the same way that, that sin's desire is contrary to you, is, is seeking to control you. Well, sin causes wives to struggle with the inclination to be contrary to their husband's leadership, to be hostile toward his headship, as sin is to us. And in the same way that we must respond to the, the hostile threat of sin by ruling over it, do dominating it with force, well, so too, sin causes husbands to struggle with the inclination to likewise rule over their wife, dominating her with force. Two sinful proclivities. Uh, Tim Chester, in his book, Gospel-Centered Marriage, it, it summarizes the results of the fall upon marriage in this way. The wife resists authority. The husband abuses authority. That's our simple proclivity. The wife is tempted to resist authority. The husband is tempted to abuse that authority. But 
as redeemed sinners, uh, redeemed saints, Christians are being called to, to reclaim the beauty of God's good design for headship and submission in marriage. That's what we're being taught in 1 Peter 3, in Colossians 3, in Ephesians 5, and 1 Corinthians 11. Now, now, when I teach through this passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, at, at marriage conferences, uh, like I plan to do in, a few weeks from now in Africa, uh, it's a two-hour lecture just on this one passage. I spend almost an hour just slowly stepping through the Bible's teaching about six other authority structures outside of marriage that call for submission, like the two that Peter's already addressed in the previous passage. And then I draw out principles from those other authority structures that can be applied to the marriage relationship. I find this careful reasoning, it helps us to combat the enemy's lies about submission and headship in general and in the marriage relationship. However, since I don't have two hours this morning, I don't have time for all that here. I'm just going to do a quick flyover of these six authority structures and thinking about how they influence our thinking of submission in marriage. So the first that I want to look at is the submission of Jesus to the Father. Submission of Jesus to the Father. Although God the Son and God the Father are, are co-eternal and co-equal, equal in essence, equal in dignity, equal in worth, they take on equal but different roles in creation and in redemption. It was not the Father who took on flesh to live and to die in our place. It was the Son in submission to the headship of the Father. As Jesus said in John 6, 38, He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Submission to the Father's headship. So clearly then, given the submission of Jesus to the Father, we learn that godly submission does not imply inferiority. For the Son is not inferior to the Father, and neither are wives inferior to their husbands, nor are husbands superior to their wives. Husbands and wives have equal but different roles in marriage. Godly submission does not imply inferiority, nor does headship and authority imply superiority. Another takeaway from that authority structure of Jesus submitting to the Father is that godly submission is designed to bring honor, not humiliation. The serpent lies when he tells us that submission brings humiliation. No, godly submission is designed to bring honor, not humiliation. The Father was not seeking to humiliate the Son in sending Him to save us. And it's because of the Son's submission to the Father's headship that the Son has been highly exalted and given the name that is above every name, as I read from Philippians 2. Godly submission is designed to bring honor, not humiliation. We can similarly reason from a second authority structure, the submission of the church to Jesus. In exercising his headship over the church, Jesus is not seeking to humiliate his bride. He's seeking to honor her, to love and nourish and cherish her, as, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5, when exhorting husbands to love, nourish, and cherish their wives. There's that authority structure that teaches us some principles about the marriage relationship. And then there's, thirdly, the submission of children to their parents. It's worth thinking through. Submission of citizens to their rulers. Submission of slaves to their masters, both of which 
Peter has already been addressing. Sixthly, the submission of church members to their pastors, which Peter will address in chapter 5. And then finally, the seventh, the submission of a wife to her husband. But from those first six, those first six authority structures, let me just summarize my main takeaways as they apply to marriage. Again, submission does not imply inferiority, nor does authority imply superiority. Your worth as a person is not connected with how much authority you possess. That's a very worldly measure of worth. We must rid ourselves of that thinking. Your worth as a person is not connected with how much authority you possess and exercise. Secondly, submission is designed to bring honor, not humiliation. Third, authority is designed for the good of those under it. It's a good gift from God. Think of the authority of parents with their children. It's for their good. The authority of governors and emperors over their citizens. It's for their good. Peter's talked about that. Authority is to be exercised and is designed for the good of those under it. It's a good gift. Fourthly, earthly authority is temporary, not eternal. Your parents will not have authority over you in heaven. Joe Biden will not have authority over you in heaven. Likewise, as there is no marriage in the new creation, and as all believers are are co-heirs, equal heirs of the eternal inheritance, as Peter will note in verse 7, this means that a husband's headship is limited to this life. Contrary to the false teaching of, of Mormons and of Muslims, every Christian woman will reign on the new earth as a king and as a priest. For Christ has conquered sin and death in the place of all of his people, and he has equally won an eternal inheritance for each and every one, male and female alike. Earthly authority is temporary, not eternal. Fifthly, submission to eternal uh, Submission to earthly authorities will be rewarded by God. This is implied in our passage about holy women of old who hoped in God. It's made explicit in the preceding passage about slaves, the reward they get for submitting to their slave masters. We cannot expect God's blessing upon our lives and God's blessing upon our marriages if we rebel against His design for our lives and for our marriages. Submission to earthly authorities will be rewarded by God. Six, there are limits to earthly authority. We learn this as we we think through these other six authority structures, we see there are limits to earthly authority. We talked about this at length in regard to the, the previous two passages, about submission to government, about submission to slave masters, where the command of an earthly authority, when it comes into conflict with God's command, We must obey God rather than men. Peter exemplified this in Acts chapter 4. Wives must never sin against God, no matter what their husbands demand. It's actually implied in our passage in chapter 3. Notice that that Peter directly speaks to women whose husbands are not believers, right? They could win them to the faith. Now, he's obviously speaking about women uh, who were married before they became Christians, because the the Scriptures make clear that Christians must not marry non-Christians, but upon conversion, what is a woman to do with her non-believing husband? She's to seek to win him by her respectful and pure conduct, 
And that includes her submission to his likely ungodly headship. But notice, it's obviously assumed that that submission to that pagan husband does not involve renouncing Christ and embracing her husband's religion, does it? Thus making Peter's instruction extremely countercultural to his day. It was expected of Greco-Roman wives to fully adopt the religion of their husbands. That's not something a Christian wife can do. There are limits to the husband's earthly authority. And this, is, of course, is where problems are most likely to arise. Hence, Peter's talk in verse 6 about not fearing anything that is frightening. I'll come back to that in a moment, but for now, recognize how this leads into the seventh and final point of application from the other six authority structures. Submission to earthly authorities is not conditioned on the godly exercise of that authority. The Roman emperor Nero, he was not exercising his governing authority in a God-honoring manner. And yet, Peter's first readers were being commanded to submit to that ungodly authority. Their submission was not conditioned on the emperor's obedience. Some of Peter's readers were slaves of unjust masters who did not exercise their authority in a God-honoring manner. And yet, these Christian slaves were being commanded to submit to that authority. Their submission was not conditioned upon a godly exercise of that authority. Well, similarly, even though husbands are commanded to exercise their headship in a manner that pictures Christ's headship over His church, loving, nourishing, cherishing, even though that certainly makes it much easier for a wife to follow her husband's Christ-like leadership, well, Peter explicitly calls those who are married to unbelieving husbands to submit to their likely ungodly headship of their unbelieving husbands. Submission to earthly authorities is not conditioned upon godly exercise of that authority. Now, I'm, I'm going to say a word about fleeing physical abuse in a moment, but, but outside of that, and outside of any coercion to commit sin, submission to earthly authorities is not conditioned on the godly exercise of that authority. Okay, so that's an eight-minute overview of something I normally spend 48 minutes on. Uh, hopefully you see the benefit of trying to combat our false thinking about submission and headship. Recall that the phrase I used to summarize this broader section, the last two sermons I preached, uh, summarize this, this broader section as our submission serves our mission. Our submission serves our mission. Our submission to earthly authorities serves our mission given us by our heavenly authority. The mission to make the gospel known to others. Well, how so? How does our willing submission to earthly authorities do this, specifically in marriage? Well, our willingness um, to, to willingly submit to earthly authorities, it pictures and it serves as an expression of our submission to the highest authority, our submission to God. We show ourselves as people under authority. And as true as that is in regard to governing authorities and slave masters and employers and parents, it's all the more the case in the intimacy of the one flesh covenantal union of marriage. Because it's explicitly, marriage is explicitly designed to picture the relationship between Christ and His church. So our willing submission pictures our submission to a higher authority. Secondly, it demonstrates that we are no longer compelled to try to maximize pleasure immediate pleasure here and now, 
living as though this life is all that we have because we know what glories await us in the life to come. It shows that we are just pilgrims here passing through on our way to glory. Our willing submission shows that. Third, our willing submission to earthly authorities. It demonstrates that we are no longer living for ourselves, but we have been called to be God's priests on the earth, charged with making Christ known. We are His pilgrim priests, not living for ourselves, but living for His glory and the good of others. And then finally, for now, uh, there's the first word in verse 1, likewise. Returning to that, likewise. That's not merely a reference to the, the preceding topics of citizens submitting to governing authorities, slaves submitting to masters. The immediately preceding five verses are about something else. The immediately preceding five verses are about Christ's submission to the Father's will, suffering for our sake, sacrificing His own self-interest for the good of others. Likewise, wives are to be subject to their own husbands, sacrificing their own self-interest for the good of their husbands, thereby picturing Christ's sacrifice for us. As pilgrim priests, we are to make the gospel visible in every sphere of life, including in the marriage relationship. And talk about being countercultural. Our culture completely misunderstands marriage. Surely it's all about you, right? It's all about your happiness, all about your fulfillment. No, it's actually designed for the good of others, for the good of your spouse, for the good of your children, for the good of society at large, serving as the foundational building block of civilization. But in giving ourselves away in the service of others, and ultimately giving ourselves away in the service of Jesus, we actually do find our greatest satisfaction. It is the path to the greatest blessing and joy to submit to Jesus and give ourselves away for the good of others. Marriage is not all about us and our happiness and fulfillment. It's about the good of others. Now let's, let's briefly examine the way that, that Peter further fleshes out what it means for a wife to be subject to her husband. Verse 3, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's pretty straightforward, right? Don't seek to make yourself beautiful by putting on goods. Make yourself beautiful by putting on godliness. Godliness, not goods. Worldly conceptions of beauty, worldly conceptions of beauty, they're designed to draw attention to yourself for your own benefit, flaunting either your wealth or your figure as you attempt to draw the gaze and affection of men who are not your spouse or as you attempt to draw the gaze and esteem of vain worldly women. The issue, of course, here that Peter's addressing, it's not about which specific kinds of hairstyle are permissible and which are not permissible, braided versus unbraided, or, or which specific kinds of jewelry are permissible and which are not, gold versus silver. No, the issue is a self-serving preoccupation with these things at the expense of what God deems beautiful. A self-serving preoccupation with what you think makes you beautiful versus what God deems beautiful, and thus what actually serves the marriage. And as we see more clearly spelled out in a, in a parallel passage, 
1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, the issue is also what Paul refers to as modesty. Modesty in regard to expense and modesty in regard to seductive intent. That's there in 1 Timothy 2. So as God's pilgrim priests on the earth, Christian wives are to pursue the kind of beauty that benefits the marriage, not the kind of beauty that just benefits themselves. Pursue the, pursue the beauty that most benefits others, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, the kind of beauty that can win an unbelieving husband to the Lord when they see your respectful and pure conduct, he says. Now, gentle and quiet, what does that mean? Well, it does not mean silent or voiceless. I spent a lot of time on this. I'll just say briefly, think about the Psalms, the Psalter. The book of Psalms, it shows us that submission to God, our submission to the highest authority, God, does not mean silence on our part, does it? The Psalms, they give us a pattern for laying our hearts bare before our Lord, giving expression to every human emotion, joy, sorrow, hope, fear, discouragement, frustration, confusion, desire, longing. They're all there, spoken to God, the highest authority in the Psalms. Well, so too, that the wife's submission to her husband does not mean that she can't voice her desires, her concerns, her fears, her opinions, her preferences, her requests. Just that she can't do them with threats or insults or a quarrelsome, fist-shaking spirit. She can't do it with grumbling or complaining, whether to his face or behind his back. A gentle and quiet spirit. Peter, Peter continues, verse 5. He says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. It's kind of a strange phrase there. It appears to refer to, to an offhanded comment that Sarah made to herself. Genesis chapter 18, verse 12. As Sarah struggled to believe the promise that a child would be born to her and Abraham in their advanced age. She makes this offhanded comment. And Peter seems struck that even in the comment to herself about a very painful sore spot in her life, her childlessness, her barrenness, even speaking to that painful sore spot in her life as she describes herself as worn out, she doesn't say anything disparaging about her husband Abraham. She simply, simply says, my Lord is old thus showing respect, upholding his dignity. Apparently, that, that seemingly mundane episode uh, speaks to Sarah's normal demeanor and her normal posture, posture toward her husband, a submissiveness that Peter says is to be imitated. Notice here uh, in our, our verse that for the second time, uh, the addition of the word own is added before husband. That appeared in verse 1 as well, be subject to your own husband. And we saw it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 as well, the word own. To add own, it's redundant. And thus, it clearly seems to be uh, emphatic. Women are not to be subject to men in general in society or in the church, but rather only to their own husbands, following their husband's leadership in the home with gentleness. Now, how a given husband and wife's responsibilities in the home shake out, it's, it's not going to be exactly the same in every marriage. That's worth thinking through real quickly. 
Who takes responsibility for, for caring for the, the interior of the home versus caring for the exterior of the property? Who takes responsibility for getting things orderly and clean and well-supplied inside and, and outside, for, for getting food on the table, for clearing food from the table, for caring for children, educating children, disciplining children, discipling children, for generating an income or other means of providing for the family's needs. There's no idyllic model that we're supposed to follow in these matters. No ideal pattern that's laid out for us in Scripture. Every culture has its own set of norms, and every marriage navigates those norms as the husband and wife see fit. Whatever stereotype that you have in your mind as you think about biblical marriage, whether positive or negative stereotype, well, it may or may not be realistic. It may or may not be desirable in your particular context. There's room for much freedom in this regard. As Lord willing, both spouses seek to please the Lord and seek what is most beneficial to the marriage. Not every marriage is going to look the same. We have to look at the main principles at play here. Finally, as we close out, Notice the end of verse 6 again. Peter says, And you are Sarah's children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Do not fear. Number one command in Scripture. Why bring that up here? Why bring up fear? Because there are things that are frightening about willingly submitting to a husband's headship especially to an unbelieving husband's headship, which Peter specifically includes here. It can be fearful to follow your husband when you believe, or when you flat out know, that he's leading your family in the wrong direction. It can be fearful to follow him, whether he's a believer or not. It can be fearful to follow your husband given what others around you, especially other modern women, will think of you. If you do so, if you submit with a gentle and quiet spirit, that can be fearful what you will be thought of by others. And it's noteworthy that Sarah's addressing of Abraham as my Lord in Genesis 18, 12, well, that falls in between two episodes in Genesis 12 and 20, where Abraham failed his wife, Sarah, by selfishly putting her in harm's way. Remember when he instructed his, his wife to pretend that she was a sister twice? This is 12, this is 20. Uh, rather than uh, identifying as his wife, he did that out of fear that those in power in, in Egypt, Genesis 12, and Gerar, in Genesis 20, he was fearful that they would see her beauty and would kill him in order to steal her from him. And so he told her to lie and say that she was his sister. He was wrong of Abraham to command her to do that. And yet... Sarah appears to have complied without a fight, presumably entrusting herself to the one who had made promises to her about her future, the Lord. As Peter said of Jesus a few verses earlier in our passage, chapter 2, verse 23, Christ left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He persevered and endured suffering by entrusting himself to him, the Lord, the Father, who judges justly. Well, as God's pilgrim priests on the earth, Christian wives are to fight fear by entrusting themselves to him who judges justly. 
trusting that God will accomplish His purposes for your life and for your marriage, even in the face of poor decisions or selfish decisions made on the part of your husband. Now, though, again, there are limits to the husband's earthly authority. I've talked about that. A wife cannot simply uh, um, submit and sin because her husband tells her to. She must refuse to sin, even though doing so may put her in harm's way. Related to this, uh, as we've discussed in prior weeks regarding governing authorities and slave masters, uh, Peter's commands here about submission to an earthly authority, it does not preclude calling out the earthly authorities' sins to their face and calling them to repentance for their good. I've talked about that at length in the previous two sermons. Numerous examples from Scripture can be given in that regard. Uh, Jesus does it. Paul does it. Daniel did it multiple times. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did it, right? Numerous examples of calling John the Baptist, calling out earthly authorities, calling out their sin, calling them to repentance for their good. That's not a violation of what it means to submit to them. And finally, it must be noted that it, it is permissible to flee for safety when physical abuse is expected. This is a common topic as we think through submission in marriage. I would say it is permissible to flee for safety when physical abuse is expected. Uh, We talked about this at length in my Sunday school class uh, this morning. I wish I had the full hour to do that again, but just a quick overview. Uh, There are times in the Gospels when Jesus fled from authorities who were seeking to lay hands on him. Of course, there's one time when he did not flee. There are times in the book of Acts when the Apostle Paul fled from authorities who were seeking to lay hands on him. In Acts chapter 9, and there was one time when he stayed. Acts 21. There are times in the Gospels when God directs, directly instructs his people to flee from authorities, whether he directs them through angels or through visions. And other times he directs them to stay and suffer. My point is, it's definitely permissible for a wife to flee from physical abuse. It's definitely permissible for a wife to report that abuse to the governing authorities whom God has put in place to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, much like the Apostle Paul did as he appealed to Caesar over the governor Festus in Acts 25. Now, this is a a large topic, like I said, and teach lengthy seminars on these Topics. There's certainly more that could be said about fleeing abuse. There's more that could be said about the permissibility of divorce and so on. But the primary exhortation, as uncomfortable as it may make us feel, is undeniable in our text. A wife's submission to her husband serves the mission to make Christ known. A wife's willing submission to her husband makes her mission to Christ make, uh, serves her mission to make Christ known. So may God bless our marriages to this end. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.